presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Uh, Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of the Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. We have the pleasure today of being joined by Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman who also served as the previous U.S. House of Representative for Colorado's 6th District for 10 years. He has been serving as the mayor of Aurora since 2019. Mike, it's great to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Earl. In addition to Mayor Kaufman, we are joined by Kate Martin, the Senior Vice President and Executive Office Special Projects for the Downtown Denver Partnership. Kate, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We're looking forward to discussing the homeless issue in our state and the unique perspectives that the two of you have. Kate, I'm going to start with you. Tell us about the Downtown Denver Partnership uh, work on the homeless. But before you do that, who in the world is a Downtown Denver Partnership? The Downtown Denver Partnership is a place-based economic development organization. We're 65 years old. And our goal is to help build an economically vibrant and growing downtown Denver. So we work in everything from retail and business recruitment to maintaining a clean and safe downtown. And homelessness has been part of our work really since the inception of the organization. Now, how old is the organization? Over 65 years old. And homelessness has been around for quite some time. Tell us, uh, you know, what is your work in the area of homelessness? What are you trying to accomplish? So our work over the last several decades has really spanned the gamut. And we have worked alongside the public, private, and nonprofit sectors in looking to create and implement multifaceted and collaborative solutions to helping support people experiencing homelessness in our community. We believe that it's critical to support our community's most vulnerable citizens. And it's also an economic imperative in terms of helping our city be successful and grow. So throughout the history of the organization, we've funded millions of dollars of outreach downtown. Um, We've also advocated for the creation of the Lawrence Street Community Center, worked closely with our service provider partners on a variety of different innovations and improvements to the way that we're delivering services in in our community. Um, We'll talk about this a little bit more later, but we also worked with a coalition to defeat Denver's Initiative 300 in a few years ago. um, And really that goes back to our work on the camping ban for a number of years. Um, We also work with the public sector and provide feedback on a variety of different plans. We also, in the past kind of year and a half, have helped to fund a $15.7 million shelter expansion program in the city and county of Denver, helping to bring online 24-7 shelters, which I think, Mayor Kaufman, you have experience with that <laughs> space. Um, and most recently, we uh, just launched the Business Coalition on Homelessness because we believe that it's critical that business plays a voice in helping to address homelessness. This can't be just a, pub- a public sector solution. Um, and business brings some really important perspective in terms of helping to analyze, understand, advocate, and ultimately bring innovative solutions online. Kate, with all of that, um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how is it we still have a growing homeless homeless problem? You're not putting me on the spot. I think this this is one of the ultimate um, questions that we have about our communities. And there's no city that has absolutely nailed how to address homelessness in our country. So we know that's an issue. It's multifaceted. 
there are a variety of complex issues that impact people experiencing homelessness, but also the communities around them as well. So at our core, we have to support the most vulnerable people in our community, but it needs to be a regional approach, a coordinated approach. And I think more than anything, we need to understand and remember that this is not a monolithic group of people. People come to experience homelessness with a variety of different backgrounds and experiences. We can't look for a one-size-fits-all solution. And I think that we as a community have done some really good things. We've also, I think, had some missteps. And so as we see a growing, especially a growing visible homeless problem in our community, I think there's some real questions to ask about what's working and what's not and where we've helped people to um, resolve their experience with homelessness and where we are perhaps enabling that experience. Well, I wanna get back after we have a chance to another question to what's working and what's not working, because I think as a populist are looking and saying, hey, wait a minute, if it's a growing issue and we're spending more and more money, we're gonna talk about that in a second, then how is it we're gonna spend more money on, on what's working versus what's not working? But before we get to that, uh, Initiative 300, you brought that up and how that was defeated. So once it's, now that it's defeated, what's the primary one or two things you're focusing on now that you know, Initiative 300 where they could have, you know, homeless people could have encamped any place on public property in the Denver area that was defeated. So now what's the top one or two relevant areas that you're focusing on? So I think that one thing that's important to note is that Initiative 300 was defeated by 82% of Denver voters. And we hear a lot of conversation on both sides of this issue. Mayor Kaufman, I have been following along your story. I know um, you have been at the tip of that spear recently. But I think it's really important to note that there are a lot of perspectives on this issue. Just because we hear the most from one group or another group, it doesn't mean that that's the only um, voice in the conversation. So what's different now? What, what are um, one or two things that are different that, that are going to move the issue forward? Unfortunately, we're still dealing with incredible street homelessness, especially in the downtown core. We, I think the transition to 24-7 shelters is a really important one. It's helping people to stabilize. We also have um, been doing some work, as I mentioned, creating the Business Coalition on Homelessness, so to bringing more people into the conversation about what's working, what's not, how do we address um, the issue with some innovative, some innovative solutions. And then finally, really thinking about how do we stabilize, provide mental health and drug addiction services to people who, um, who need it the most and help to get people off the streets and into stable, into stable places more quickly to help them resolve homelessness. Okay, you said there are some innovative ideas that, that you all are working on. I'm going to ask you what those innovative ideas are, but not that once you answer that now, I actually go to Mike. Mike, you took your holiday to decide <laughs> that you wanted to learn a little bit more about what would, what it was like to be homeless as best as you could. And I must admit, I've enjoyed reading the various accounts of what you did. And uh, thank you for the courage that you exhibited to do it, even though you're catching a lot of flack from some folks at the present time, but hey, it took courage, partner, and we appreciate it very much. But seven days living on the streets uh, with the homelessness, uh, what in the world inspired you to do it? Well, at least share that. I could, I think I could figure it out knowing you as I do, but share it with the rest of us if you would. Well, first of all, Mayor Hancock reached out to me shortly after being uh, elected mayor. 
uh, about working together jointly on homelessness. Uh, that was back in early uh, last year. And I pushed back at that time because I felt that the the most significant issue for Aurora that we could jointly be working on was youth violence prevention. And so we did jointly work on that. And then his office reached out to me again around the middle of December and said, you know, would you be interested in uh, working on the homeless issue uh, on a regional basis? And and uh, I thought about it and then I said yes. But as I thought about it more, I, I didn't feel like I really understood the issue. Uh, to me, that the homeless population was somewhat homogenous, in my view. It just had really mixed feelings about it, but no real understanding of it. And somehow I came up with the idea that uh, I would go homeless for a week. And, uh, you know, we had a, a backpack, uh, a sleeping bag, tarp, toothbrush, toothpaste, a bar of soap, a towel, uh, two bottles of water, and that's it. And then uh, an extra pair of socks. And uh, only one pair of clothes, uh, one set of clothes. And so the extra pair of socks, obviously, were from your military days. (laughs) From my military days. And so uh, I thought I'd start out in Aurora to understand the issue better because I thought that would be a little safer. There was a large encampment uh, on Colfax east of uh, I-225 in an open field. And uh, in Aurora, they tend to be a little less visible than in Denver, our encampments. And so... But unfortunately, so I literally started out downtown Denver. Did a, the only person that knew I was doing this was a reporter in uh, CBS uh, 4. So I left that station, walked up Lincoln, then walked all the way east on uh, Colfax, all the way to this encampment. So it was dark by the time I got there. And there was nobody there. It had already been uh, cleaned up. And so some young man rode a bike, came up with a bicycle as I was pulling my backpack Putting, pulling my sleeping bag out of my backpack. He says, you really can't stay here. The city comes by every morning and checks. And so, great. So I ended up spending my first night uh, unsuccessful in terms of talking to people, but sleeping in a parking garage on the Anschutz Medical Campus. Then stayed in a, a shelter in, in Aurora for a little bit, stayed in two different shelters in Denver. And then uh, during the day, uh, in Denver, went uh, visiting these various encampments and then wound up staying at one uh, in the vicinity of uh, uh, Lincoln and uh, Spear, uh, right across, in fact, from the Fox 31 studio. And so it, it was an extraordinary experience. And, and what I found is they're really not homogeneous at all. <laughs> that, for instance, the those who stayed in shelters never stayed in encampments, and those who stayed in encampments uh, wouldn't go to the shelters. And so there was there was two very distinct groups. Uh, I will say, and, and to the shelters that I was impressed that when I did in process into the two different systems, uh, Aurora and then Denver Rescue Mission, that they did uh, uh, offer me a number of services in order to uh, move out of homelessness, whether you know mental health, uh, drug and alcohol. Uh, job training, uh, very short programs, long programs. So I was impressed, uh, certainly by that. Uh, I did find in the shelters, first of all, three different groups. Uh, those that are um, suffer from mental illness, uh, not a large group, but, but um, you know, tragic. And if not for places like the Denver Rescue Mission, I don't know that they would survive at all. Um, at least they could get food there. They could get um, sleep there. Other than that, they, they are never going to be functional to be in the workplace. 
uh, that element. Um, and then uh, a very large uh, group of people that unfortunately suffered from drug and alcohol uh, problems in, in the shelter system, probably more alcohol than drugs. Uh, they just weren't going anywhere. They were uh, content where they were and had a, basically a lifestyle uh, that, that accommodated to, you know, their addiction. Uh, and then a smaller group that was really fascinating and really, um, I, I think, promising in terms of being resilient. And those were people that were uh, economically di um, displaced, say, by COVID, some by COVID, uh, some by simply having lost their job. Uh, and in by losing their income, lost where they were staying, but and really used the shelter system wisely. Uh, they begin, you know, doing uh, day labor, finding jobs, but staying in the shelter in order to save up enough money to be able to pay rent. And so uh, they really had a solid path toward uh, stable housing. And then uh, the encampments now. There are a number, a lot of people that are camping in one to four numbers that I really did not spend time with. I spent time with in the larger encampments at that time in 22nd uh, and Stout, uh, 11th and Acoma, um, in front of not necessarily an encampment, but a lot of homeless people gather in front of uh, the city and county building of Denver. Uh, they do sleep in the pavilions. Uh, sometimes. And then uh, Spear and Lincoln Broadway in, in um, Spear in, in those areas, uh, in, in those um, in campus. And what I found really was a much younger group of people. It kind of reminded me of the late 1960s, early 1970s of the hippie movement, uh, where the, it was it was cool to kind of drop out of society and be in this communal type of setting. And, and I sort of felt that there. Uh, with these young people. And what amazed me there, so I didn't have any money, which was a problem because I couldn't use, I couldn't buy a bus ticket or do anything. I, I didn't panhandle. But food was never a problem. And that there were always places for me to eat, you know. Uh, but what amazed me in, of, of the, the encampments is the level of support that they receive from residents of Denver and from restaurants bringing food out to them. I ate better in the encampments Oddly enough, that I did in the shelters, probably that I do at home. But, you know, one evening, uh, January 1st, the night of January 1st, last day, night doing this, I'm at in an encampment and the a car pulls up as it's getting dark and says, anybody's hungry? And I said, sure. And you got some hot chicken noodle soup, you know, and, and a good container, uh, disposable container and, and some uh, banana nut bread for dessert. Uh, great you know, homemade food. And then uh, probably 30 minutes, another car pulls up and says, anybody hungry? And I said, sure. <laughs> this is not good for a weight loss program. They gave me a Tupperware container of the best homemade beef stew I probably ever had. Then uh, a roll with it, uh, a cupcakes for dessert and a bottle of water. And so it, it's, it's this amazing, the enabling that goes on for really is destructive behavior for these encampments because what I saw, the common denominator there was not the drug use of the hippies of the, of the late 60s, early 70s, marijuana, hallucinogenic drug. What I saw was really a very hard destructive drugs. The, the drug of choice was crystal methamphetamine, uh, either injecting or smoking. Uh, there was some heroin uh, and there was um, uh, some crack cocaine. But, but crystal meth was, was a drug of choice. And let me tell you, I did not meet uh, young people there 
uh, the ones I could talk to that had any interest in moving on uh, with their lives. I mean, they were there. Their only concern was there was a possibility of being uh, swept uh, by by the city and county of Denver. Mike, I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled by what you're saying because you've been bordered as saying the question that I have to answer is whether or not a camping ban actually aggravates sure. the problem. Well, different from Aurora than Denver. I, I, first of all, I think Denver is done the right, doing the right things. Here's the calculus in Aurora. Number one, we have a very modest program uh, problem. And number two, if you have a camping ban, it's going to be attacked in the courts. And in order to survive legal challenges, you have to be able to meet certain requirements in, in looking at case law. And one of those requirements is you have to have a permanent year-round shelter. Aurora does have a shelter right now, but it is scheduled to terminate on April 30th. And it was uh, it was sort of pandemic-driven. In other words, what we had, uh, kind of the status quo ante prior to the pandemic, was we have a, uh, on the Anschutz Medical Campus, there's a an old gym that was an army gym that was left there that, is, that we turned in uh, and have a contractor do at Mile High Behavioral Health to a, a what we call a day shelter where the area homeless can, can go in for to receive different services, you know, uh, mental health, health care. They can get um, food there. They can shower there. They can do their laundry there. It's a safe place to be inside. Then what we do, our policies before the pandemic was, if there's inclement weather, we'll turn it into a 24-hour shelter for that night. The problem with the pandemic was the requirement for social distancing, where we could no longer accommodate the numbers that we were used to having on a 24-hour basis there with social distancing. So we we took we leased a, temporarily leased a warehouse using federal CARES Act dollars. That lease comes up in April. If the city council chooses to extend that to extend that and make that a permanent shelter, then in fact I'll move forward at that time with the camping ban. But right now, I think given the modest problem that we have and the fact that we don't have a permanent shelter and, and we would be required to with the camping ban, that's my only rationale. Um, again, we have a very modest program problem in comparison to Denver, which has a very very serious problem. I would agree with their policy direction in terms of having and maintaining a camping ban and very glad that they just survived a court, another court challenge where they're allowed to, um, to sweep these, those experiencing homeless in these, um, these uh, encampments, which I can tell you are just incredibly unsanitary, uh, the, you know, between the, the, the trash, trash and just the sheer filth uh, that are a threat to uh, public health and a threat to uh, public safety. And uh, under CDC guidelines, you can move. You're not supposed to move people uh, in, in, during the pandemic unless there are those threats to public health and public safety. And these clearly are. And I, and I applaud Denver uh, for doing that. And uh, they, their court challenge, I think the only requirement out of the last court challenge was a seven-day notice requirement. Kate and Mike, I really appreciate you kind of laying the groundwork as to where we are today. But, you know, let's get, you know, let's, if we can, focus on some solutions. Because I think all of us are trying sure. to figure out, hey, we've got a growing homeless problem. Uh, I think it, I remember reading some uh, material that uh, Mayor Hickenlooper had started aggressively mm-hmm. trying to solve it. And in fact, I think he was quoted as saying it could be solved in a period of time. And they had hired a person to look at the issue and, 
And I, as I remember, not much progress had been made, not any fault of his own, but just the uh, goals have been set, but not much progress. Kate, the city just passed the ballot measure 2B, and it's 2.5 cents of a sales tax on every $10 to fund housing and homeless services, and it was passed last November. What do you expect that uh, these additional funds, and you might tell us how much you think that is, what's going to be accomplished with these additional funds? And you mentioned some unique things that are being done that uh, you think are helping get results. So fill us in if you would. Absolutely. So um, initiative to be passed by Denver voters in November, it's expected to collect up to $40 million a year in additional funding, um, obviously under stronger economic conditions than we have now this year expected to have somewhere between 35 and $37 million of, of sales tax collection. And I think it's important to note that this funding also augments the city of Denver's affordable housing fund over a million dollars, as well as Denver voters love a sales tax. So the last election cycle passed Caring for Denver, which is also 0.25% sales tax that funds mental health and drug addiction services. So those three things are meant to work together to help holistically address the issue of homelessness in our city. Wait, wait, wait. let's add all this up if we could and add to that if we would. CSI, we did a study that said there's already $50 million being spent. This is as of 2019 by the volunteer services and community services that were in place. And now you're saying there's another 45 million from 2B and you said there's another, how much on top of that? The I, I won't get the number right. The affordable housing fund in the city of Denver, I think is over $150 million. I actually did look this morning, HOST, which is Denver's Office of Housing Stability, which really manages our overall efforts is related to homelessness and housing, um, is expected to have $106 million of revenue in 2021. So that is $37 million as their baseline budget. Plus, then you add the $37 million from the Homeless Resolution Fund. So the amount that is running through um, the host program alone at the city and county of Denver is $142 million. Holy cow, forgive me. But with the 50 that's already there, you're talking about close to $200 million. That is five times more than what we spend on public education per student, per person, based upon the number of people we have. Okay, that's fine. So what are the results that you expect out of $200 million that the public and private sector is trying to apply to this situation? So I think there's a really important uh, conversation to be had around what it takes to bring housing online. It's really expensive to bring housing online. There's some innovative ways that, that, that folks have started to do that. Um, the goal of initiative 2B is to bring 1,800 homes with support services online in the next 10 years and then create 500 to 600 units of new shelter and housing and catalytic projects. So that scale is, is massive. And if you think about it right now, uh, the point in time survey in January uh, had four, just over 4,000 people experiencing homelessness on one single night in January, and just under 1,000 people were unsheltered that night. So if you look at that scale, you'd be able to help theoretically address all of your unsheltered people experiencing homelessness. I think that as we look now, how do we bring additional units online, bring in some of the you know, housing with support services, um, residential shelter that helps for with rapid rehousing and wraparound services, 
And then there's some issue, there's some catalytic type things. Um, we recently went and visited the tiny home village that's for women and trans people in Denver. I think what they're doing is really interesting, bringing people and into that space and helping to support them with the goal of being there for a year. There's also a high, hotly contested safe outdoor space um, model that's temporary in Denver. But I think as we think about street homelessness and uh, how we get people out of unsanctioned camping, um, that may be a way to say you can't camp here, but there's other options here for you, um, or you can go inside. So a number of different things happening there. As you look at 2021 for those 2B dollars, unfortunately, a huge number, a huge percentage of that has to go to COVID emergency response and continuing to make sure that we have the proper amount of um, services for social distancing and helping to keep people safe and healthy. But then um, host is also looking at, at housing and, sh and service supports and then shelter and services. And I think from our perspective, one of the most important things is that we have some really clear, measurable outcomes from these dollars to make sure that we're actually moving the needle, making sure that the, the investment, whatever the number is, it could be $200 million, um, that that investment is actually taking people from homelessness to permanent housing and doing that in a really meaningful way. So, Kate, I'm a business guy, mm -hmm. and I don't see the relationship between cause and effect here. I understand the homeless issue, but it seems to me that, you know, Mayor Kaufman laid out some of the causes for what's going on, and I didn't hear any program you're talking about where more money is going to be spent helping that person who lost their job, who maybe is, needs retraining or helping the people who are alcoholics get off of it, get off of the, the addiction they have there. And worse yet, the young people he was talking about that were being enabled uh, around the community center downtown that were you know, on heavy drugs and destroying their lives. So I understand the homeless. I appreciate that. But where's the effort? And I guess I'm going to transfer that question to Mike, because Mike, you know, you saw it and you're trying to do something regionally uh, with uh, Mayor Hancock. Help us out. What, what do you see that, you know, you've taken on this responsibility for helping the homeless. It seems to me it's all you're doing is enabling them if you don't figure out a way to get at the cause of what the issue is. So help us out, Mike. So I think, uh, first of all, I think that, that the, 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 the regional approach probably will be coordinated by the Metro Mayor's Caucus, uh, Mayor Hancock and I being a part of that now going forward. But look, I think there's an ideological divide um, here that I wasn't aware of before I, I did the trip and then got blasted by so many so-called advocates for uh, the, the homeless, particularly those in encampments. So uh, on one side, what you have is what's called a housing first philosophy. And the housing first philosophy says that housing is so basic to the human condition that, first of all, there's an assumption that the people that are unhoused or experiencing homelessness are, are doing so through no fault of their own. There was trauma in their life or there was um, economic circumstances or whatever. So that's the first assumption that they are there because of circumstances beyond their control. Then you, then the housing first model says that 
again, housing is so basic to the human condition that if you address that particular need and you don't require anything else, so that there's there's none of the heavy mandates in some of the other programs I want to talk about in a minute, that people will address their own needs, that they will address their substance abuse problems voluntarily, that they will uh, participate in, in work skills training if that's necessary for them to do voluntarily and that they will eventually attain stable housing in a self-sufficient manner um, through their through their own work. And so that's one theory. But, but the other theory is probably based on existing programs that I think are successful. And that is the Denver Rescue Mission as a long-term program that, you know, when I was eating lunch or something or dinner there, they would pitch people uh, voluntarily being a part of this program. There was nine to 11 months, uh, and it's at the crossroads, I think, that they call the facility, where uh, it's for homeless men and the chronically homeless that, you know, deals with substance abuse issues. They have to commit to being sober, uh, deals, but but they they certainly uh, will undergo treatment, uh, mental health treatment if necessary, work skills uh, treatment, and then uh, the, the, then getting a better job to where they can afford stable housing through that means. And so there's there's pretty heavy requirements on them, and it's not voluntary. Uh, it's voluntary to participate, but once you're to be in the program, you have to adhere to a number of requirements. In Aurora, we have uh, this, there's Step Denver, which is uh, the old Step 13, same principle. And then there's Ready to Work in Aurora, Boulder-based nonprofit that we have an agreement with in Aurora, where they've taken over an old office building, converted it to um, uh, to four homeless individuals, uh, where they've converted the offices into dorm rooms. They've got classroom space. That, so, but it's but it's it's requirements from day one. Also, a commitment to be sober, and you know, work skills training, and then getting a job, and then getting a better job, and getting their own housing. So. There's kind of two different philosophies. The the problem is how do you deal with people in the, I think we know how to deal with people who want to change. How do you deal with people that don't want to change that you're enabling them through your support where they have no intention of changing uh, their lives? I met a lot of people in the shelters, uh, particularly older people, alcoholics, that they would get offended if you, 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 you know, you ask the question in a certain way, but for instance, uh, one person I remember talking to who said, uh, I, I said, well, what did you do before you became homeless? He said, oh, I was a commercial truck driver. And I said, really? I said, wow. I said, it, it pays really well. He goes, yeah, it pays, it paid great. And, it, but I lost my, my commercial driver's license when I got a DUI and I lost my house. I lost my fiance. And I said, well, did you spend any time? And he goes, yeah, in Adams County jail. And I said, wow. I said, how long ago was that? I said, when did that happen? And he said, in 2005. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, and he was content with the life he had there. So, you know, a lot of people in the shelters, uh, older people in disability or applying for disability. Um, so there's a lot of, th- you know, things that enable a certain lifestyle. And so that's the hard question. I mean, how do you move people that don't want to change? Um, never met anybody in the campus. And again, I was not in the small, in the larger ones, um, more organized, had social structure, uh, had leadership that sort of evolved from within, but never met somebody that, that 
wanted to go back and start working and, and take those adult responsibilities. I mean, that's the, to me, that's the greatest challenge. How do you deal with people that don't want to change? And if you're enabling their behavior, are they ever going to want to change? I agree with you there. And I think that that illuminates one of our biggest issues we have here. We can keep throwing money at the issue. Um, but then if we're not also providing a policy solution that makes it so you're not just allowed to have your behavior enabled. We're just going to continue kind of addressing a part of the issue, but not the whole issue. And there's the ideological divide that you mentioned, I think is one of the greatest inhibitors to actually coming up with real solutions and helping people, helping people who want to be helped to get better. And, um, you know, they, I heard a staggering stat. I think meth rehabilitation for people who want it is 18 to 24 months. Wow. That yep. is a really long, mm-hmm. expensive prospect if you're thinking mm-hmm. about addressing all of the people that, that you experienced. And so we have we have some serious thinking and work to yeah. do. Yeah. And let me just say that the, what concerned me about Denver and to a, a lesser extent, Aurora, again, our, our homeless, our encampments are just, uh, you know, they tend not to be very visible, but to be just downtown in these neighborhoods, somewhere like 11th and Acoma was in a neighborhood, that there is space for them in the shelters. And, and that's part of the one of the controversial elements that I raised was that what the, the so-called advocates are saying is they don't want to go to the shelters. Uh, and, and Denver has to maintain, if you have a camping ban, you have to maintain that, that alternative of being able to refer them to a shelter and have capacity for that. Denver does have that capacity for those people. But that the so-called advocates say they don't want to go to the shelters because, uh, oh, the pandemic, uh, they worry about getting COVID and congregate living. They worry about um, getting their few possessions stolen. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they worry about yeah, the safety and pets and stuff like that. And But let me tell you, that is not the case at all, as I found it, that they, they didn't want to go to the shelters because the shelters have rules. And one of the rules they have is that, you know, no drug use in the shelters and in, in these encampments. I mean, it's, it, they can use drugs at will. To me, there's no reason for these. When, when Denver has capacity for shelters, uh, there's just no reason for these encampments. And, and I do think there's something in human behavior that I want to look into further. And that is, if you allow people to not work and support them in some way, will they descend to a level where they're at right now? And uh, I, and to what extent? Obviously, I saw a lot of drug use as a common denominator in these um, these larger encampments. But what about the, the the smaller ones? And let me do this: say some I've had seen people camping alone. Those people that there are people suffering from mental illness that don't go anywhere and that are out there, but they tend not to be in groups. They tend to be out there alone, but it's very tragic. And we certainly have an obligation to help them. Mike, Kate, uh, I can't thank you enough for, for, you know, having the courage to talk about this, this and, and, uh, you know, laying out some alternatives and giving us the truth. I hope the policymakers and business leaders will take time to listen to what you had to say today. And I hope they also come to the table with you all to help solve the, solve the issue. Thank you very much for sharing those insights. And if there's anything that, in just a few words, because we're way over time, that you'd like to add, then you would okay, like yeah. to Okay, uh, yeah. Well, I just want to, you know, the Denver Business Partnership is uh, 
uh, done an extraordinary job on this. In fact, uh, right after um, um, I did that, the week uh, at, uh, experiencing homelessness, uh, Tammy Dore, uh, the executive director, reached out to me to, to share with me her concerns. And uh, and so uh, I think that we'll continue to have that communication uh, uh, with them. It is a regional issue. Uh, and uh, I want to do my best to, to help come up with solutions. Hey, thank you both for your leadership. It's been exceptional. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.